So we had in the 20th century some pretty favorable conditions between the 1940s and 1980s where it was pretty easy to put out wildfires and people got comfortable with the idea that we could. At this point, we're still really good at it. Firefighting puts out 97, 98% of all the fires. It's just those pesky 2 to 3% of fires that get away and really burn most of the land area. Um, given that reality, one of the hopes that I have is, is that um, communities get comfortable with the fact that we are going to have fire. There is no fire-free future for us. And how we live with fire is really up to us. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Now, today's episode, we're talking about adapting forest to wildfire. And that sounds stupid because wildfire has always been a part of the forest. (laughs) But we're talking about climate change here now, people. And we're talking about, you know, our legacy of fire suppression and how do we deal with this powder keg that we've created for ourselves where there's tons of fuel and really hot, you know, fire prone weather. How do we deal with this? Right. And so I brought on Dr. Susan Pritchard. She is a research scientist at the University of Washington School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. Uh, she's a fire ecologist and she focuses a lot of her research around climate change and adaptation. She also started the Flame Lab, uh, which is Fire Landscapes Adaptive Management and Ecology. The Flame Lab is focused on landscape fire ecology and management research. So, Strong emphasis on climate change and that kind of thing. So the perfect person to talk to about how do we deal with this fire situation that we are currently in? Um, how do we get fire back in the landscape in a way that is healthy for the ecology, safe for communities? Uh, how do we get you know cultural burning back on as well? How do all this kind of interesting stuff, how do we make sure that ecology is is healthy for all the values that we hold, right? And uh, so, yeah, that's the conversation we had. I hope you like it. I had a blast talking to her. It was, it's always fun to talk fire. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a it's just a cool cool conversation to be having, especially around the, this crazy situation that we have now with you know climate change and everything else that humans have done. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, sponsors for 2022. West Fraser is the number one. Without them, this would not be possible. Thank you, West Fraser. Greenlink Forestry, another sponsor. Could not do this without them. Thank you, Greenlink. Damaged Timber. Go to damagetimber.com and you can figure out what damaged timber is all about. Put in your Forest 10 at checkout and you get 10% off anything you purchase. They put damaged timber in your home. Now, uh, and finally, Forest Proud is a partner of this podcast. They've been helping me out. I've been helping them out. Been great, uh, you know, getting the getting the word out there about the pod and everything else. And it's been great. So thank you, Forest Proud. Without any further messing around, let's dive into this really cool conversation with Dr. Susan Pritchard, all about adapting Western North American forests to climate change. Here we go.
I think it's best to start off just saying that uh, we've done this the first 10 minutes of this already, and I apologize for having to redo it, but uh, here we go. <laughs> That's um, okay. <laughs> uh, so, okay, why did you get into this area of expertise? How did you get into it? And what is it about this area that drives your passion? Um, absolutely. Do you remember what you said so, last time? I kind of do. I think I can do it. So okay. <laughs> um, one of the things that some people ask is, you know, how did you get into fire ecology? And I actually think of my, about myself mostly as a forest ecologist. And that stems back from being a young teenager and um, spending a lot of time in the woods with my parents. We lived on Whidbey Island in the middle of the Puget Sound area. And my dad was a high school counselor. So we had summers off. And so my parents took us to the Olympic National Park, North Cascades National Park, elsewhere. And on those trips, we drove through a lot of logging operations. Back then, it was the height of cutting down um, a lot of timber in the Pacific Northwest. And much of that um, terrain, especially near the national parks, were old forests. And mm -hmm. So we'd go through these massive clear cuts. It was really upsetting to me. I remember at the age of 13 hearing that you could actually see the outline of Olympic National Park from air because so much of the national forest had been logged around it. Mm -hmm. So um, one day I came home and I said, hey, mom and dad, in earth science, I just heard that you could be an environmental scientist. Did you know that? And they're like, no. Yeah, well, maybe. And I said, <laughs> that's what I want to be. My dad actually um, had some doubts about it. Um, he mentioned maybe I would be a better teacher or a counselor like him. And um, maybe through his little bit of doubt, but especially because of all those hikes, I was I was dead set on it. That is exactly what I wanted to be. And um, I know that many people kind of like wander in their careers, and that's a really good experience to try on different things for size. But um, I was sure that I wanted to become a forest ecologist. Yeah. Um, that sense of wanting to be the best scientist that I can be really has inspired me throughout my career mm -hmm. to guide forest management. And so I often find myself at this cusp of management questions and scientific research. I really like to be there. Yeah. No, it's so cool. I think the, that, that that applied area, right? Like, how do you mm -hmm. how is how do we apply all, everything that we've learned to actually do the thing, right? Like, the knowledge right. is great, but how do we how do we make the action, right? That's I love that. I feel that too. Yeah, uh, and like I said before, I wish I had the uh, I wish I had the certainty that you had at thirteen because I definitely did not. But I, I ended up in this area anyways, and I, and I yeah, I love it. It's great. Um, right. So. So yeah, jumping right into that, this this paper that you wrote, adapting Western North American forests to climate change and wildfires: ten common questions. Uh, this is one of three. And uh, how did this idea of of yeah adapting North American forests, adapting forests to climate change, very specifically, come to your attention? And, and why was it something? Why was that the specific thing you wanted to try and tackle? It actually, one of the reasons why I've been interested in this idea of adapting forests to a warmer climate came from studying under um, Linda Brubaker at the College of Forest Resources at UW. And um, she's a paleoecologist. So she studied 
long-term climate change and vegetation mm. response to it. And in an early lecture, she was a fantastic professor. She mentioned that large and severe wildfires often act as a catalyst for vegetation change. So a forest has a lot of hang time because trees are deeply rooted. They're built to last around the Pacific Northwest. They can mm -hmm. live for centuries. And so even like the heat dome of last June um, wasn't mm -hmm. enough to kill a lot of mature trees. It can happen, but they are truly, um, they've got a lot of inertia to them. Right. And what she shared with us in that class was, is that at the point where the mature trees have died and conifers need to come back as young seedlings. That is a really vulnerable stage of a tree's life because a tree seedling only has tiny root system, low carbohydrate reserves. It's just a tiny thing. And so that particular summer where it's taking root and trying to survive is pivotal. If these massive fires come at the same time that um, climate is both warmer and drier, um, that can lead to a lot of vegetation change. So mm. that's been in the back of my mind as a forest and fire ecologist throughout my career. Mm -hmm. uh, for the last 18 years, I've actually lived in eastern Washington in a small community called the Metau Valley. We have been pummeled by these large fire events. They have happened record-setting after record-setting year for us. And so when I walk in the woods or, or run in the woods or bike, I'm often looking at these forests that are now forced to start over by seed. Mm. In Ponderosa Pine Country, that's really troubling because these large Ponderosa Pines, sometimes two, three hundred years old trees, are built to withstand fire. They have thick bark. Their crowns are often, you know, tens of 20 meters up in the um, sky. And mm -hmm. they should, some of them should survive. But in many of these wildfire events, um, the fires are too intense. And so a lot of them are dying and needing to start by, by, by seed. I yeah. worry that in some of these really dry areas, um, these wildfires are literally erasing forests off the map. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and it's it's important for people to understand the context of that, right? Like these Ponderosa forests, like you said, it's not like a lodgepole pine or a jack pine forest that is that's that is the stand replacing event. That's how it happens. This mm -hmm. is something something different. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. even in the high country, you know, we have a lot of mountains here. What we've been seeing is. Um, just continuous mature forest that first got hit by a lot of mountain pine beetle as this first contagious event. And then second, really just massive wildfire events that haven't had very many stops. There's not a lot of areas where there used to be fires and then a fire comes through and, and encounters young forest without a lot of fuels. It's just mm. all ready to burn at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. So the, the first thing that I noticed when looking at this, at this, uh, or I were actually at the point that we didn't record up to last time. So right. we're all caught up, folks. Everything <laughs> from here on up. is new. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, when I first look at the, at the paper, at this specific paper, uh, the first thing that catches my eye is the number of authors. And I feel it's important to bring up because I feel it adds a lot of weight to the words in the paper, right? Um, so I wanted to talk to ask you the question of why 16 authors 
Um, and what was that process like of trying to find the right people for this job? Right. So I just described a little bit about um, what I've been seeing in my neck of the woods. But in speaking with colleagues all through Western North America, definitely including Canada, um, mm -hmm. we've been hearing similar stories about how fires are often larger and more severe than they used to be. And what are the fuel conditions um, that are leading to these changes? What we've um, discussed over conferences, but then in COVID times of COVID, um, over the phone or over Zoom meetings was is that we're actually in really close alignment. Um, mm. A lot of us are seeing similar patterns of loss of fire and major kind of fuel loading on these landscapes and a sense of urgency. Like we actually know enough to do more work in advance of wildfire seasons and it's not getting done. So mm. that really encouraged us to cast a broad net um, yeah. of authors that could represent these different regions of Western North America and also present the fact that much like climate change science, when climate change science really came together and scientists knew enough to start expressing the urgency of climate change, we felt like we had that same cohesive message that we could tell about adaptive management. That's pretty impressive, right? Like to find this, like just like as a broad scale, right? That everybody from different perspectives, from different sides of the story is coming to relatively the same conclusion. Like that doesn't happen a lot in science, right? It seems like we're always kind of battling each other and trying to find the ultimate truth, but everyone comes together and is like, no, this is what's happening. Then that's, that tells a pretty strong story in and of itself, right? Absolutely. There is another um, side to this, which is, is that there have been some contrarians. I think there always are. Always so are. We can, <laughs> yeah. we can yeah, ask, yeah, like, yeah. why is that? Why were there just the few scientists that didn't believe that climate change was anthropogenic in right. um, its origin that got a lot of airtime in the media to kind of present a polarized view? The same yeah. thing has um, definitely happened with this idea of adaptive management, especially mm. in more of the dry forest types where sometimes we talk about forest thinning to increase forest resilience to not only fire, but also drought, insects, and disease. That's been controversial. Yeah. And so we were inspired to get out the message that most of us who work on the cusp of management and forest fire ecology actually agree. That's incredible. Yeah. And I think, I think that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, there's always, yeah, like you said, there's always contrarians and they exist and they do what they do for their own <laughs> reasons and that's fine. Yes. That's great. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we've got a consensus though. That's good. I think I'm, I think I'm especially glad that we've gotten to the point in society where we don't have to say human caused climate change anymore. We can just say exactly. climate change and it's implied. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we're at that point. I think we've turned a corner. This is good. Right. Um, so to speak to the, like the comprehensive nature of this, of this paper specifically, um, how are you, how can you be certain that you were comprehensive enough? And then we'll and then we'll start getting into this picture because I think I think you've done an incredible job personally in my own biased opinion I think this is an this is great right um, 
I'm sure you've gotten a lot. I'm sure maybe I'm sure you've gotten some at least uh, contrary viewpoints and some some fight back against it. Um, yeah, how what would you say to people? And you say how um, how do we how do you know you did a comprehensive job and included all the perspectives and have come to the right conclusion? That's such a good question. So I think that the one area that could have been expanded. Um, was on cultural burning and um, really recognizing that Indigenous knowledge persists and Mm. that um, Indigenous people throughout Western North America um, had a really good handle on living in fire country. So we tried to bring in those voices, but Mm -hmm. personally, I think that... um, had it not been for a time of COVID, I could have actually done a better job bringing up these topics in more of a workshop format mm. and bringing in even a, more of a diversity of voices. As sure. you can imagine, having 16 authors or co-authors is herding cats. It just yeah. is. So, um, <laughs> I was trying I to come up with an know. anecdote. And herding cats was the first thing that came to my mind, but I was like, no, that implies that the cats don't know what they're doing. And I was trying to think of an anecdote that would imply a lot of people <laughs> that have loud voices that know what they want to say and have specific opinions, and I couldn't come up with it. So anyways, <laughs> that was a well, side Well, we, we were quite lucky. I felt like um, my colleagues were jazzed about this series of papers. So the nice. 10 common questions was the third paper. Okay. The second one was actually on just a meticulous documentation of why we know that fire exclusion throughout Western North America really changed forests and fire regimes. So that actually even had more authors. So you mentioned 16, but we actually have well over 30 in this set of three papers. So um, coming back to your question about, did we, do we feel like we were comprehensive enough? I would say that, um, we really tried and that I'm super proud of it, especially the second paper on ecological departures. Mm. It's meticulous. Kiala Hagman just did this incredible job along with her many co-authors to pull it off. The yeah. intention of that paper really was to provide um, managers with an understanding that um, – we really do know that um, forests from low, dry, dry, low elevation forests up to mountain forests have been radically changed by a loss of fire. And yeah. that then teed off our 10 common questions paper. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that. It's good to just kind of be like, okay, science, let's just put a cap on this one and stop and let's go, let's move on to the next thing. Like, let's keep mm-hmm. moving forward. Let's. Th- we're good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> We're running out of time. For people, come on. Let's move along. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so, yeah. Um, there is I, one, sorry. I was going to tell you one more thing, if that's okay. It's um, your, this is your show. I'm just trying awesome. to curate it. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get me going on these topics. The other thing that I would say deserves its own paper would just be on the topic of managed wildfire. So even Mm. what is that? Do we finally have a term that we can use? Um, People float around like fires for resource benefit, unplanned ignitions. Um, There are a lot of different terms for what is a very pragmatic approach to the fact that we're not getting enough active management done and probably won't for a while. So how do we work with ignitions and um, hopefully have them be restorative? 
Absolutely. That's actually, I want to get to that near the end. I had some very specific questions about like around, because I feel like that kind of caps it off of like, Hey, what do we do in the interim? Right. So I want to get to, I want to get to that near the end. Um, for now, uh, I think we need to paint the picture, right? Where are we? How do we get here? And I think I've, I've gone over this at nauseum probably on the podcast of like how we got here and that kind of thing. But if you want to, if people are new to the, to the show and they've never heard this before, can you paint the picture of the climate situation that we're in as far as forest and forest management is concerned um, and how we got here? You bet. So okay. um, I think everyone who lives right now in Western Canada or the Western United States or Mexico feels how much longer fire seasons are and smokier mm-hmm. and um, frightening in many ways. So we're having a lot more fire. That's something that we're all experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the media, sometimes it just feels like it's all about climate change. And there's a little bit of a a fatalism sometimes when I read news stories in the media too about Mm-hmm. Ooh, we're only going to get longer fire seasons. Um, fuels are drying out sooner, staying dry, and fire weather is getting more extreme. We're getting stronger wind events. We're having more lightning and thunderstorm activity in some areas. And so that whole picture about climate change and wildfires mm-hmm. feels incredibly daunting. Like, oh my gosh, the West is burning and it's just going to continue burning. As a forest ecologist um, who happens to love this topic about fire, I've become increasingly frustrated with that narrative because there's also at the same time a confluence of a lack of fire. So how Mm -hmm. do we actually talk about that in the public of some people use the term good fire, bad fire. I don't love that personally. But the reality is, is that um, when Europeans arrived on the scene, they brought with them smallpox and measles and tuberculosis and unfortunately decimated um, native populations, indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, we also then um, have ongoing colonialism, which has suppressed um, indigenous voices for centuries. And so mm-hmm. that narrative, I think, is just super important because um, in the past, in a lot of Western North America, people lived here and they lived with fire and they mm-hmm. actually worked with fire. And so some of what we've lost is certainly lightning ignitions, but we've also lost um, a lot of human tending of fire. And so when I think about the last century plus of change, Um, I think about the profound changes that forests would have had from a loss of fire. So Mm -hmm. at low elevations, those frequent fires maintain savanna or open forests with a lot more grass and shrubs that carried quick fire through and again maintained um, fire resilient trees and ponderosa pine, western larch, Douglas fir, oaks. So it's just fun to think about that type of fire. But also up in mountains, we've lost um, a lot of the patchwork of forests burning one area and then not burning another because it was too soon for a fire to actually blow through that patch. And so 
um, throughout Western North America. I think we've just seen this infilling of meadows, of openings, of savanna with a lot of trees. My yeah. colleague, Paul Hesburgh, calls it an epidemic of Douglas fir in some areas <laughs> where we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, coming back to this idea of climate change and wildfires, um, yes, we are warmer, drier, we're having longer fire seasons. But we also have a very volatile situation out in our forests that actually doesn't have to be there. And whether or not we want these wildfires, they are actually tipping away at this fuels problem too and going to be changing the nature of the next fire when, not if it comes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's one of those things where some people, I have some, I'll have some listeners, they might shoot me an email, right? And be like, oh, so you're saying... Like, why can't we just let Mother Nature take its course? And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, the problem is that Mother Nature isn't Mother Nature anymore. It's 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 human nature. <laughs> it's what we've done <laughs> to it. And what Mother Nature is going to want to do is going to be counter to what our values and our goals are in the short term. <laughs> and so, therefore, if we want to maintain our values in the short term, because in the long term, maybe you might be right about Mother Nature, but in the short term, mm -hmm. we need to be more creative. And... uh yeah, that's kind of been my thought as well is that we've kind of created this unique situation that has probably never existed prior um, and it's new because we're, we're the new part of the equation. I should say Western society, not not people because mm -hmm. obviously, right, indigenous people, like you said, uh, managed it just fine <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. before we showed up. Uh, damn white people always screwing shit up. Uh, <laughs> that, that could be the name of a podcast right there. Yeah. yeah, I think it probably is a few probably podcasts. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting because now we're in the situation where, yeah, we can't just let mother nature do its thing. If, if we want to protect our own values and, and our own people, we have to actually be creative and do something different. Um, and it puts us in a weird situation, right? Like how, okay. So we haven't seen this before. Uh, it's our fault. How do we go about doing this, right? I feel like it's all hands on desk, deck at this point, right? Because it's just right. We need we need everything, like everybody, everybody. Let's do this. Come on, like yeah. It's not. It's definitely not like a one solution fixes all. Like let's just burn it and start from scratch. It's <laughs> there's there's a lot going on. So um, in this in the in the ten common questions paper, maybe let's break down uh, some of the tools that you and the other co-authors came to find that would be useful. Obviously it's all situational. It's all, if this, then do this, if that, then do this, but let's just talk about in general, some of the tools that you think are at play here to help us maybe accomplish what we need to accomplish, which I put that in parentheses because I don't know what that is, but. <laughs> right. Right. So as we were putting this paper together, um, the co-authors and I really discussed how, we need all the tools in the proverbial toolbox. And so right. let's talk about those and really start understanding how management, even though we're seeing these trends and this vulnerability of forests across Western North America, um, management is always very place-based. And so what are the tools that work in certain places and not others? And how do we all bring those into more of a landscape or a regional perspective? So 
one of the things that we wanted to start out with was this idea that um, we no longer have a no action alternative. That's kind of mm. a fascinating concept that oftentimes when we're proposing active management, such as thinning or prescribed burning or both, we need to actually do an environmental assessment or environmental impact statement to understand that we're not doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. But in doing nothing at all, we're actually still suppressing fires. And that is one of the most profound land management decisions we make is actively taking fire out of a system and continuing to do so. So that was really the first meat, meaty question that we had to ask was, uh, do are these forests departed from fire exclusion and are fire regimes getting worse because of it? Meaning, are we getting more high severity fire? And so we started that one first and it's kind of a heady topic, yeah, but yeah. we wanted to because <laughs> I of had to that sit here and think pretty hard. I was like, wait, what are you saying? Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. know, like that's probably good feedback is, is that we're still working on our messages, but I keep on coming back to the fact that Pulling fire out of fire-prone systems is hugely, monumentally a big management decision Mm -hmm. with consequences that we're living through right now. So that was question number one. Question number two was uh, addressing the fact that wouldn't it be great if we could just have a win-win where we could do commercial logging and reduce fire risk all at once? And the science shows really definitively that that doesn't often work. There are some Mm. definite instances where I've done my own research and co-authors have too, where Mm. individual thinning units that didn't have subsequent prescribed burning fared pretty well, especially under milder wildfire conditions. Mm -hmm. But on average, we call that a rearrangement. So you're thinning trees, but you're setting down probably more fuels on the ground that um, set the stage for a high intensity surface fire that cooks trees and scorches them to the point where you get a high mortality. So Mm. um, we really do collectively, like all these co-authors really do love prescribed burning. Yeah. We're pretty excited about it. And so- Um, The research shows that on its own or in combination with thinning, um, prescribed burning really works. One of my colleagues, Matt Jolly, calls it um, giving the forest a bath. And I think that that's kind of a funny analogy, but it cleans up a lot of the fine fuels that carry um, high-intensity fires. So anyway, that was a tool that we definitely spent some time on. Mm-hmm. Another topic within that we described was is that in some cases, there's been so much forest infilling and maturation of trees that you can't actually get the thinning done with just fire. So mm. a low intensity managed prescribed fern is probably not going to kill a moderately sized Douglas fir tree because its bark is too thick. And so combinations of thinning and prescribed burning to, you know, actually achieve more drought tolerance for those forests is important. So, yeah. Um, 
That was going to yeah. be a question of mine because I'm like, yeah, prescribed birding, of course. Like, but then in the homogeneity, because we were talking about the homogeneity of the forest of how we just kind of got this even age class carpet of trees where mm-hmm. there was once this mosaic, right? And so, yeah, I'll, that was going to be my question actually. Well, I was like, well, how do we, how do we make get that mosaic back? Because, um, and yeah, so that was going to be a question of mine. So that makes sense. Yeah. Excellent. So another thing that we focused on just a bit, and I would have loved to have more time with this is how do we restore oak woodlands? Because wow, in terms of drought adapted, climate adapted forests, um, all the way from California up through Willamette Valley, Puget Lowlands, um, oaks are um, a good bet, but right now they're really invaded by pesky Douglas fir, other conifers, bringing those oak woodlands back is difficult if you only have a fire option. So Mm. yeah, especially near human habitation and oaks are one of the best places to live. So yeah, we were also kind of exploring how um, thinning, active thinning is probably um, the best bet. Gotcha. Some fuel reductions. Yeah. Damn people always in the way again. <laughs> Every time you turn around, we're there. Yeah. We're, we're there. Just causing problems. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Then, well, I'll, I'll, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Yep. No, no. Good. You keep going. The other tool that I think is so underappreciated is wildfire itself. So even okay. though we're sounding the alarm and we are, that sure. we're not getting the wildfire effects that we want out in a lot of landscapes. Mm-hmm. They still have, each wildfire event still has those marginal days where the fire kind of sets down and has more low to moderate effects. It leaves mm-hmm. a lot of that patchwork um, and heterogeneity and trees are able to survive. All that work that wildfires do in those more benign weather days can be counted as restoring resiliency to forest landscapes. That's Mm. incredible. And so even though we didn't have a lot of space for it, one of the things that we wanted to explore is can we as a society be a little bit more courageous and allow for some of the late season wildfires at least to do some work? Or are there situations where we can actively defend one margin of a fire while working with another margin for ecological benefit? Mm. And that topic is probably the most pragmatic, actionable management that we can do because wildfires, they're burning with impunity. If we can actually Mm -hmm. work with them and get better effects from them, Um, then we're going to be set up with more of the landscape treated before another big summer wildfire event. Absolutely. Yeah. Like why, yeah, why not use it to your advantage, right? It's another tool in the toolbox. As long as you can steer it in some way and you're, yeah, then yeah, why not? Absolutely. For sure. We didn't have a lot of space for this, but, um, about 15 years ago in where I live, some of the firefighting, um, was pretty aggressive with burnouts where Mm. we'd have a summer wildfire doing its thing, but then crews would come in often from a different area and say, let's let this wild, let's let this burnout rip and create black between us and the wildfire. 
Some of the effects of those burnouts on really hot, windy days were even worse than the wildfire itself because they mm. laid a lot of fire on the ground and fire is additive. So there's a lot of energy put into it. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, I'm seeing crews practice a lot more patience. And mm. some of that is to not be in harm's way. But I also think that strategically, firefighting crews are creating more spring and fall-like prescribed burns with their burnout operations, which is incredible. It's like highly skilled, awesome firefighting that's restorative rather than just achieving that black area. Right. Oh, that makes sense. So they were just laying down line after line after line after line of fire to try and just, let's get rid of the fuel, get rid of the fuel, get rid of the fuel. Yeah. This let's is an emergency. Meet, meet yeah. this fire with another big fire versus, yeah. hey, let's take some patience here. We're going to start from the top of this ridge, lay down a little bit of fire, work down patiently mm -hmm. and get us a really nice prescribed burn rather mm -hmm. than a big blowout. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I know that that totally makes sense. And it's, I guess that's one of the things that they, yeah, it takes time to learn how to do that kind of stuff, right? If it's, I, it's, I it's, mean, a, it's, it's a challenging thing, right? Yeah. To try to manage something as wild as fire, right? <laughs> something right. as unwieldy as fire can be, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Having lived through two decades of pretty terrible wildfire events near our community, um, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for firefighting crews. If they can also be increasingly encouraged to do good work out there while they're fighting fires, that would just be win mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the way around. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one of the like, one of the big paradigm shifts right now too. Right? Is that how is that changing? How is firefighting changing with with the knowledge yeah. of all of this? Right? Um, I suppose we can get to it now, just because it seems to be topical, but. Um, how do you how do you see that changing? Because I think uh, you know up until the last whatever ten twenty years, it's been a fire starts and we stop it, and that's just what we do, right? Um, when when we have such a, a a broad amount of people are spread out everywhere, right? So there's mm -hmm. communities everywhere. It used to be that okay, well maybe we can let maybe we can let some of these fires in the wilderness areas go a little bit more, but there's not that many of those, right? Like relative to how many people there are out there. Um, and so we're still stopping fires. We're still trying to just kind of control them. Um, how do you see firefighting changing? Uh, how, how do we go into this new paradigm of wanting to apply more fire, uh, but also needing to stop communities from being burned to the ground, right? Right. Do you, you, yeah. How do, how do we go about doing that? Because I feel like that's there's been a lot of talk about that. Like, oh, we need more prescribed burning, like, you, like you've been saying, right? We need to do it a little more smarter. But when it comes to the actual firefighting, how do you start to triage these situations? So I should preface this by saying that I am not a firefighter. So I have a lot sure. of respect for the craft, but um, I also recognize that that's not what I'm trained in. Um, sure. What I can say is, is that um, – in the United States, we have a wildland fire decision support system, and mm. it's there to really kind of anticipate, all right, so we have this fire behavior happening in this type of fuels. What if we get a stronger winds or a change in weather? How could this fire move through the landscape? And just kind of mm. it's a decision supports tool. One of the layers that I've noticed that is increasingly um, relied on is past wildfires. 
So where there have been fires and they're relatively recent, those are areas of opportunity. So it would oftentimes the fuels are reduced and some past wildfires, if they're really new and there's not been a lot of grass recovery in them, mm-hmm. won't there there'll be barriers to spread. So as we're getting more wildfires in much of the Western North America region, um, we're having more of these opportunities to do things a little differently. One example that I have in uh, my area is there was the 20, 2006 tripod fire. Um, 2014 Carlton complex fire bumped mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. 2015 Okanagan complex fire bumped into it. it was not ready to reburn and crews actually knew that. So they were able to actually concentrate their work towards communities and c- communicate to the public. The tripod is very different fuels. Um, these fires are probably going to bump into them. If they do spread, it's going to be through more down logs and patchy fuels. It's not going to be such a volatile situation. Mm. Uh, t- 2021, tripod was ready to reburn. But in doing so, it actually um, burned differently. It didn't require as much firefighting, and it wasn't going to necessarily allow a big fire to erupt and carry far. That will come, but this patchwork of um, past fires is a really intriguing one because it allows crews to diversify their tactics Mm. and um, count on some areas having altered fire behavior so it's not so volatile. I think we're going to see more and more of that. Now, here's one question that I have. What should we do about the tripod? Right now, it's being allowed to just kind of rebuild with a lot of lodgepole pine everywhere. I would argue that that's a really great area to get some managed ignitions in there soon so Mm. that they pockmark that landscape with these different ages of forest and don't set the stage for another 100,000 hectare fire. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, start to apply that... These, these tools at our, our disposal to start to create that mosaic again and, and see how that responds. Absolutely. And, and we might not be comfortable doing that under a completely fire-excluded landscape that's just loaded and ready to burn. Yeah. But these past wildfires give us some different decisions that we can consider. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. That totally makes sense. And yeah, I think it's 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 naive to say that the that I'm sure... I'm sure industry doesn't have a role in that as well, right? When it comes to the forest industry itself, right? Like that that demand for timber, that demand for for annual elbow cut, that that need for lumber um, plays a big role in that, right? And that and that push socially to to keep bigger trees on the landscape, um, regardless of their homogeneity or the the fire danger, right? There's, I mean, obviously they're they're considering that. I'm not saying that they're not thinking mm-hmm. about that, but I just mean that 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 is another factor in here. Um, and I'm sure there's 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 pushback in that regard as well. It's it's that's a, that's another challenging social factor to include into the whole this massive already very complicated picture. <laughs> it is, yeah. And I would think that you know, in some ways, it was dreamy that we had the 20th century where forests just kind of infilled everywhere. It's great carbon sequestration. You know, right. we had our North North American carbon sink going on for sure. Awesome idea of, all right, so we can cut these forests and they're going to grow back. 
And now we have this uncomfortable reality that if we allow for that same fire excluded landscape to be everywhere, Mm -hmm. we're going to have more and more of these record setting wildfires chipping Mm -hmm. away at that potential timber supply or awesome late successional habitat that we value. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Ultimately in the end, it's, we, we, if, if business wants to exist, they need to have a sustainable amount of wood and you're not going to have it if it's just everything's homogeneous and burning all the time. Right. So yeah, totally. Or being ready (laughs) for another massive insect outbreak, which happened throughout BC. Right. Climate change. Thanks again for that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And fire exclusion. Yeah. And both. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a very, it's funny whenever I have these big these big conversations like this that are talking about big picture stuff, I find my brain scattered and picking up pieces here and there, and then I realize that I'm trying to make sense of this conversation and create like a linear storyline <laughs> that people can follow along step by step. And I, it's, sometimes it falls apart a little bit, but in my own brain, anyways, this is good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's fascinating to to start to imagine this just this homogeneous landscape where we're trying to apply these, all these new tools or not new tools, but all these tools that we have in a way that keeps everybody happy and keeps everybody safe. Right. So what do you imagine just as a thought experiment, what do you imagine as like the ultimate endpoint of this type of strategy? Right. Um, I mean, I think the, the way I was thinking was more, um, in the past, like we said earlier, in the past, there's a lot of discussion around we need to get back to what we had, right? Um, we need to get back to the to, to what we had pre-colonization kind of thing, and, and that'll be a more sustainable system, right? And to me, I, and I think you would agree, that the reality is that we're that's not going to happen, right? The climate change has had too much of an impact. Uh, Western society and population growth has had too much of an impact. So – what I'm asking is what does the forest of the future look like in the best case scenario, right? In your mind, mm-hmm. how do we, how do we, not how do we get to that, but what do you think it looks like? So I have to just start out by saying that my number one priority for society is to cap greenhouse gas emissions so that we don't have runaway train wreck of climate yeah. change. Carbon so- sequestration, right. Yep. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. um, mitigating our emissions is like absolute mission number one. But if totally. we can get there, we're still living in a warmer, drier climate. And yes. that is our reality. So I can, I'm can. i just going to focus on that. Like the, totally. the future of unabated climate change is scary. And so mm-hmm. I'm not going to go there in my mind, but I'm just going with all right, we're already living through um, climate change right now. Mm -hmm. So within that, I think we needed to broker a new reality with fire even so. Mm -hmm. So we had in the 20th century some pretty favorable conditions between the 1940s and 1980s where it was pretty easy to put out wildfires and people got comfortable with the idea that we could. At this point, we're still really good at it. Firefighting puts out 97, 98% of all the fires. It's just those pesky 2 to 3% of fires that get away and really burn most of the land area. Um, given that reality, one of the hopes that I have is, is that 
um, communities get comfortable with the fact that we are going to have fire. There is mm-hmm. no fire-free future for us. And yeah. how we live with fire is really up to us. Um, mm-hmm. I like to kind of um, give people some examples of where I think people are starting to make that shift well. Yeah, um, I, I have deep respect for the Karuk people in the Western Klamath region advocating and um, really elevating their voices to bring back cultural burning practices mm-hmm. so that they can restore some more fire resilience. So I think that um, finding examples of indigenous burning that's mm-hmm. um, being elevated to a no, new or former level is mm-hmm. incredible. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty excited about that. And then for other communities, I just visited the community of Kimberley, BC. Yep. And my yep. colleague, Bob Gray, has been working with um, the city of Kimberley and surrounding areas for past decade or more in proactively thinning and prescribed burning right around that community, really close into houses. And um, we just visited there and it's it's pretty incredible to see prescribed fire carefully done right by the main entrance to Kimberly, right by power lines and right underneath a housing development. And Bob actually kind of let me know that people next to that in a different housing development asked when they might be also able to get a prescribed burn. I think Mm. that that's progress. So when we get to the point where a community in a Western town with some terrain is actually comfortable with the idea of some fire to present mm-hmm. the prevent the bad fire that's living with fire that's yeah. like working with the system and knowing it's a matter of if not when that a big wildfire is going to come through and doing something about it another success story that i've been excited about is in our community in a lot of eastern washington people are starting to get indoor air purifiers And um, the network of purple air monitors is also really reassuring in people's houses to let them know that even really simple box fans with filters work and Mm. that all of us can actually get prepared for the next smoke event and live through it a little bit in a better way, healthier way. Oh yeah, because it's having think, a huge impact on our like our, on, on the on the on the health industry, right? On the medical industry, it's just it's, yeah. it's it's wild. You can see the statistics change over the last ten years of it more and more fire and more and more smoke, and the increase in the number of people going to the hospital for for breathing problems, right? It's it's yeah. it's directly correlated. It's pretty it's pretty wild when you see it in the statistics, and you're like, well, it's. There it is, right? Right there. Hard to deny, right? Yeah. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So particulate matter in itself is bad, but then just learning more about volatile organic compounds and all of the the chemicals and smoke that can um, be really bad for us, it's a big deal. And so when I think about being fire adapted, I also think how important it is to become smoke adapted. Washington Mm. State just passed a rule that people who employ outdoor workers need to make accommodations so that they can, these workers don't work outside in unhealthy air. So um, I know there's complicated um, considerations there, but um, I do feel like as we talk about the future of living with fire, we can do a much better job than we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Like it's, 
it's not like I think I think a lot of people and society in general I think the last five years has kind of been like well this is really bad but like it's okay it's gonna get it it won't be like this forever and I think what you're saying is you're like well (laughs) maybe we should prepare just in case it is right yeah Yeah. I find that interesting because I think we've kind of been holding our breath and just being like just it'll be okay it'll be okay it'll be okay just wait next year will be fine and it's like well seems to be continuing Yeah, Yeah, I actually had the privilege of sitting down with Governor Inslee recently from Washington State, and I was certainly not the only one in the um, room. But he asked a question of, um, how do we prevent these wildfires? And he was more nuanced just than that, but it is something that I think a lot of people have at their tip of their tongues. um, How do we get ahead of these fires so that we can prevent them? And I've been really um, trying to reframe that because there is no way. We're not preventing fires. We're changing, hopefully, the nature of fire when they come. And I do think we can do a lot towards that. No, absolutely. It's that, that's interesting to see that, that change in people in in the, in the, in the folks in, in the small Western towns or whatever, right? Where they're starting to actively see like, oh, we can have a healthy relationship to fire. Like it's not always this big, you know, crowning wildfire that's threatening our home. It can be something that's more manageable, more sustainable, more rejuvenative than just a a blank slate, right? Um, Right. I think that's that's kind of – do you personally in your own – I don't know how much like public – consultation or public, you know, uh, engagement you have in your job. Um, I, I imagine some, I imagine you do interviews and that kind of stuff. Like I, I don't know mm-hmm. you, you spoke to president Biden and that kind of stuff, but, um, do you, do you see on a broad level, do you see that, that relationship changing in a positive way? And, and how far down that line do you think we are? Like how much farther do we have to go? Do you think before there is a more public acceptance of fire than there is, you know, fear of it? So I have to admit that my friends and family know that I really actually love fire. And so maybe (laughs) I'm like getting a bit of a biased audience here. But (laughs) in in my communications with the public, I have noticed that there's an increasing acceptance that fires are not going away. And with that, um, two things. For sure, this sense of, well, how do we prepare for them? So everyone I know in our community, and it's a, a tight-knit, diverse, you know, politically community, at least it's politically diverse, everyone does firewise work. So everyone's mm. preparing their homes um, carefully, making sure they don't have a lot of tinder dry fuels around their house, screening. So mm. that work is being done. Didn't used to, but there's yeah. really that sense of we're, we're going to do this work. And then... Uh, fire smart I, in Canada for those Canadians that don't know smart. what she's talking Thank about. Yeah. I was Same waiting idea. for it. I, I knew <laughs> that. But yeah, so that concept has really taken hold. I've heard of some folks in Western Washington start thinking like, all right, so what is Eastern Washington doing? I think we're going to need to start doing some of this work. But that that's kind of a new kind of area. The other thing that I've been hearing <laughs> is more of an acceptance of prescribed burning. That's a hard one. I'm just going to admit that it's super hard for fire impacted communities to deal with any more smoke because it's not only a nuisance and sometimes really unhealthy, Mm. um, but also um, 
it can be kind of a reminder of the trauma of wildfire seasons and just emotionally difficult to live through. So absolutely. Even though there's more of a pragmatism for that being a really good tool, there's also some hesitation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm from I'm from Slave Lake, um, which I'm sure oh, you know you is are. so My I gosh. have family and friends and everything. So yeah, totally aware of that part, the emotional trauma piece that goes with losing it, losing your home and losing your community or whatever. So yeah, yeah. no, I, I totally get you there. That's that's another piece that I I think we often don't consider in environmental management. Right? Is that um kind of that trauma piece and like how that mm-hmm. changes people's minds and like how that might be difficult to get over for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Very. Yeah. It's yeah. Very challenging, especially now that it's becoming more and more common. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as what, how do we, I, I, so I, I know you're aware of the Good Fire podcast that I do with Amy Cardinal Christensen, and um, we, we spoke about cultural burning a little bit and, mm-hmm. and Good Fire that way. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm often thinking about, like you talked about changing society's relationship to, to fire so that we have maybe a more nuanced uh, relationship with it, a, better, a little bit of a better understanding, healthy understanding, and not just this fear, right? Um, and immediately, uh, of course, I'm sure your mind goes there as well. My mind goes to uh, indigenous people, right? Who, like you said, were working with fire for, for millennia. Um, is there, what kind of opportunity exists in your mind for that as well. Like, I think that's, that's a harder one for, for Western society to get on board with, right? There's just, there's always this, there's a struggle there. There's a bit of a, it's a challenge, right? There's these cultural differences that make it hard to communicate. Um, do you see, do you see that becoming, do you see good fire cultural burning coming back on the land in a way that is in a real way, right? And not just a, a surface level way. Do you think it's something that that's, that's going to be able to be done the way we, we hope it to be done? at least in the United States. I sure hope so. You know, I think that um, just seeing this tidal wave of um, understanding about where we are still with colonialism is um, pretty powerful. So a lot of us are recognizing that it never ended. We're still Mm -hmm. in it. And so Mm -hmm. empowering indigenous voices to, um, take part in many more land management decisions, not just fire, but beyond. Um, it's exciting to me. And I think that um, we're just seeing the tip of that right now. It's ex- yeah. also exciting to think that um, what is happening right now in BC is really um, having ripple effects in Washington, Oregon, and California and beyond. So communities are definitely um, uh organizing and learning from one another. So in terms of cultural burning, um, I just feel like as a a Western scientist, whatever I can do to um, just raise indigenous voices and partner, Mm -hmm. um, I want to do. So I think actually we're going to see a lot more um, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And it seems that way. And I think the reason I'm asking that question is because there is this there's these people who have this relationship already right they have this understanding mm-hmm. and they have this relationship and they have this knowledge of how to go about this in the right way right and there's definitely a lot 
that they can teach us, right? And so I, I just see such a such a missed opportunity if if we don't allow indigenous people to do their thing. And like you said, partner and even getting them to to lead some of these these uh, these prescribed fire ideas and some of these stuff around communities, right? Because I th- I just think there's there's so much potential there, right? Why not have the people with the experience do it, right? Yeah. I also, I've been picking my words a little bit carefully because you have the to. last. There <laughs> were a couple right. of white people talking about indigenous <laughs> sovereignty. Of course, well, you have to be I careful. mean, the last thing I would ever <laughs> want to do is be like, hey, you know, I know we took away your land and we <laughs> killed you and we made fire absolutely illegal. And we've really screwed things up. There's even a stronger word for it that I'm not going to say on your podcast. (laughs) And now, can you just come help us fix it? Like, no, no, I'm not doing that. And so as a Western scientist, if there are ways that I can learn um, about fire ecology, that helps. Um, I'm super excited to do that. But then my role is to just empower people's voices. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely see, I mean, I definitely have a biased perspective, but yeah, it definitely seems like there's a lot of movement in that direction, a lot of healthy movement. And it seems like it's, it's getting to be more understood, more normalized and more publicly accepted, uh-huh. which is awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, right. It's, it's, it is such a delicate place, right? Where like, you want to be a good ally, you want to be a good ecologist, you want to be a good, and you're like, how do I, how do I do this and not get in the way? Right. How do I, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I one of the things that we've been talking a lot about um, in ecology is like that concept of like just how to be a good ally in a lot of ways. How do mm. we um, uphold diversity, equity, and inclusivity? And mm. we've been talking about how none of us start good at it. Like we're all beginners, and <laughs> so it's super important to. Um, understand that we're going to make some mistakes and um, treat this with a lot of humility and keep trying. So that that's yeah. where I'm at with it. Yeah. Take it on the chin and keep moving forward. And yeah, Try absolutely. to be a good beginner. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Remember, we're always learning. We're always learning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's such a, it's such a fascinating concept. Like I just, I imagine the, this, I mean, obviously a yeah, good fire coming back on the land, but like I'm more, I'm going back to the the paper and this whole conversation about mm-hmm. adapting forests to climate change and the concept of adapting, right? So like really trying to actively change it in a way that is, that is helpful for all values is just such a, a big thing. Um, and it seems like it's just, it's, it's just a piece by piece thing, right? Like it's just, we just really have to use all the tools at our disposal and, and all the, all just anything we can to try and try and move this in the right direction. And, uh, do you see what kind of resistance are you, do you see, do you see any real resistance in this way? Do you, or do you think things, the tide's kind of changing and that we're starting to get to that place where we can actually start to make real strides and just stop, you know, stop just talking about it and start actually doing this stuff. There's still a lot of talk about it and that is incredibly frustrating. Um, just a couple anecdotes. Um, I, we were just part of a work of wildfires workshop that Washington Department of Natural Resources spearheaded. They're basically after each fire season trying to assess what work negatively that wildfires did that kind of put mm. forests back um, and create some restoration need. 
and mm-hmm. what positive work that wildfires did, such as like the low severity or more moderate severity effects. Um, as we were having this conversation, one of the managers said that um, a lot of their projects using adaptive management strategies, such as thinning, prescribed burning, monitoring, um, are on the books, but wildfires got there first. And now they have to start completely over and do all of their environmental assessments once again after these wildfires, which puts them even at more of a disadvantage. And so there's a sense that we need our environmental laws. There's no question about it. But the pace and care that we're taking to plan for treatments is very slow. Is there a way that we can plan for larger areas and have more kind of plans on the books so that we get more work done? Those are some of the questions managers are asking right now because there is a sense of like, wow, we want to do a lot, but we're not getting very much done. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the time anymore to continue to just – take it slow like this right like i remember listening right. uh, uh and i keep going back to the good fire podcast and i don't know that's yeah. just it's, it's fresh in my mind right now um but i keep going back to stuff that, that 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 a lot of them say right and they're just like no we stopped asking permission we're just doing it now because we know that we know what we're doing and we know and like and i know that that's that has whole legal ramifications and stuff mm-hmm. like that but i'm saying like for them for, for 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 them for the people that have that those fire stewards on in their community and they have that knowledge and that knowledge base and the ability to do it properly um it's 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 gone very well and they've had a lot of success and they say that all the time. They say that the bureaucracy is too slow, right? Like we can't wait for this anymore. It just has to be done. The time is now, right? Not an hour ago, not an hour from now. The time is now. I can't wait to write this report, to get it in, to get approval from somebody. It needs to be, we need to start giving trust to the people that have this ability, right? Instead of having this chain of command almost where you have to be, you know what I mean? It just, it just, it's so, it's so front heavy, it's it's that's the way the western society's built its 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 system right but it's so front heavy so when i learn about indigenous cultural burning or sorry indigenous fire stewardship mm-hmm. and learn about how no there's people on the landscape in that local area in that local community that know the area they know the landscape they know where the fire breaks are they know everything um and when the when the moment strikes they say okay now's the right time right and they can do it and they can be done successfully whereas in our society we have all this bureaucratic holdup keeping us from mm-hmm. taking action um i wonder if there's any I, I know that you're a scientist right you're not a you're not a you're not a, a politician do you, do you see any push in that direction to kind of give professionals and these fire stewards the ability to do what they know how to do or do you still see a lot of this you know wait we haven't considered everything idea So I want to say that I just have enormous respect for those fire stewards and what work they're able to do. And also that, that familiarity with fire and comfort with fire is something that I hope that more of us start to feel. Um, I have heard of some really great examples, um, in national parks and wilderness areas where, um, management from the highest delegation of authority wants those fires. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's kind of a really critical piece of all of this is is Mm -hmm. that crews on the ground, if they have support to say, hey, adaptive management is learning by doing, let's go do, 
then yeah. there can be a bridge between all of that paperwork that still I think is very necessary on public sure. lands at least mm -hmm. um, and environmental laws are good. But mm. I think that there needs to be that overall agency will to get work done and a cultural shift to like, instead of why not, mm. um, why for let's go for it. And yeah. um, so for me, um, some of the barriers feel cultural within right. agencies that there's a big risk aversion. Crews yes. might get in trouble for making a mistake versus agency saying, you are going to make some mistakes, but the mistakes are, they're dwarfed in comparison to these summer wildfires. Let's go do some work. So I think yeah. that that's where we need to get. And there are some spectacularly good examples. One of them, Chris Marks from Grand Canyon National Park. He also is a manager for North Kaibab, their kind of joint management yeah. areas. Um, he said that after all the tourists went away, November, many, you know, like a lot of their concerns about burning were over. They mm -hmm. took a two-person helicopter crew with ping pong balls and mm -hmm. lit south-facing slopes, and a lot of them. It's called the mm -hmm. Slopes Project. North-facing mm -hmm. slopes, skiff of snow. They were absolutely great barriers, and they got so much work done. Yeah. His presentation was all about that can-do, how can we get this done? I have agency buy-in. Let's go for it. Yeah. I'm really excited for that, the can-do attitude. Totally. Yeah, and I think it comes down to that. I think what we had in the past was that um, almost that idea of like uh, uh, like city planning concept. We're like, okay, we're going to spend a decade talking about how we build this, how we're going to build this road. And then we're going to go out and spend a few years trying to find the right people to do it. And then we're going to wait for the right opportunity to do it. And they're like, that's fine. We can do that. And I think that application of government got moved into fire and we didn't realize how that doesn't work, right? Because fire is active and moving and there's the opportunities are fleeting and you need to be ready. And yeah, so like you said, it's just removing, it's not like you don't have to do pre-planning. You still have to have that, but just make sure that the, the ability exists for when the opportunity arises to do that thing, right? Instead of having right. to go through all those steps every single time you try and do it. You just say, you got pre-approval, like do it when you think it's ready. Right. And it's just kind of, we have to put trust and yeah, I like that idea. It totally makes sense. Yeah. So another thing that I will say is, is that unlike, you know, planning for a thinning or some sort of like timber sale, you have distinct boundaries and you've got an absolute, hopefully absolute prescription. Mm -hmm. Fire is a blunt tool. You know, it's yeah. so important but um, working with fire takes some finesse and allowing it to sometimes be sloppy and have some surprises. I think that that's an important thing to recognize is that as a management tool, fire is not always going to be the precision tool that we expect from management, but rather good enough and worth the risk. So those mm -hmm. concepts are tricky but yeah. important. Especially when it comes to liability and insurance and everything yeah. else, right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, prescribed burning, it gets an excellent report card. We hear about the big ones that get away, such as what just happened in Colorado and New Mexico. Yeah. Sad events, need to learn from them, but 
uh, I think that prescribed fire escapes are less than 1% on at least federal lands in the United States. That's pretty incredible. It is. It's, it's, it speaks a lot to uh, to what we're able to accomplish. And, and I think we're only getting better at it too, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not like that's the best we can do. It's like, no, we're getting, we're learning more and more as we go. And, and it's just going to get better. And, we're, and as, as time goes on, as the, as the landscape starts to become more like this, you know, heterogeneous landscape with more mosaic and a lot of different age classes of trees and more grassland and more this and that and the other thing was more broken up then maybe it becomes a more precision tool right it like could then, then all of a sudden it could get less, there yeah less volatile fuels definitely give you a lot more um decision space yeah. Another colleague of mine um, from Central South Central Oregon, um, Katie Salbury, she's now the, um, I think she's Oregon Prescribed Fire Manager for the Nature Conservancy. Mm. Just speaking of learning by doing, she saw what happened in the, um, what was that fire? It's not the biscuit fire. That was a lot earlier. Um, you'd, you'd know. I wouldn't know. I'm in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, very large recent wildfire in South Central Oregon, and I cannot believe I've forgotten the name of it. But um, the Nature Conservancy had a number of thinned units that were ready for prescribed burning, but the summer wildfire got them first. And the effects were not good. They lost mm. a lot of their mature, older trees that they were hoping to save. Mm. Um, it broke her heart. She actually got choked up with me as we were talking about it. And she said, you know, speaking of this adaptive management, I think we should consider in these tinderbox fuels doing the prescribed fire first, reducing the fuels so that they're not so explosive and then doing our thinning and then doing another prescribed burn. And I was like, huh, never heard of that before. But it's another example of, I think, as managers get more comfortable with these treatments, starting to try to riff on them as we race against the climate clock. Mm -hmm. No, it totally makes sense. Yeah, just have as many options available as possible and, and be ready to go when the, when the, yeah. when the moment strikes, right? Um, right. Even – even just time-wise, right? Like I think about, I don't know what it's like in the States, but I think about time-wise when it comes to fire fire management, fire planning, right? Um, clocks, people people will start at 8.15, right? And it's like, well, that's when we'll start doing the fire stuff. And it's like, well, maybe we need to be more malleable. Maybe it's earlier, mm -hmm. right? Maybe we need to be up earlier doing that stuff and prepping and getting that stuff ready. And it does happen. I'm not saying they don't do that, but there's a lot, there's still that mindset of like, well, I work eight to five or eight to four 30 or whatever it is. And, uh, that's my timeline. And, and we need to start understanding that that the fire doesn't work in that window. And that's, that's another societal, another cultural thing that we need to kind of mm -hmm. shift a little bit. And I, I feel like that is also changing, right? Right. And yeah. there's, you know, major trade-offs because I know that nighttime burning shifts have more accidents. And so, they should be considered with caution, um, but nighttime recovery rates of fuels means that you might get a lighter touch fire if you're working at that time. So, yeah, yeah, just don't don't poo-poo uh, one tool just because it's you haven't done it or whatever, right? right. Like it's just let's I, let's consider everything. Yeah, that's uh -huh. awesome. Excellent. Well, uh, I really appreciate your your time here and and breaking this all down for us. Um, do you have anything? Maybe we want to summarize. Your thoughts here, because we've talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, 
I'm trying to think of how to maybe maybe I'll just let you do it. A lot of times I'm able to to quick it off real quick. Like, okay, so this 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 and this. Perfect takeaways. Excellent. Um, what do you think are the takeaways from this conversation that people should start to understand? If you had to summarize everything we just discussed. Also, well, before, if there's okay. anything else you want to add in before that, anything else that you feel like we haven't gotten to, we can do that right now too. Okay. So what I just realized recently that, you know, I've told other people that I wanted to become a forest ecologist when I was 13 because I was really worried about old forests being cut down by logging. Mm-hmm. And now in my 50s, I realized, my gosh, I have actually never changed focus from worried about old forests. Mm. Now, though, interestingly, these old forests are often in drier places and they're burning at unprecedented rates in summer wildfires. And so I was just going to end with that to say that um, I'm still very concerned about what's happening right now out in the woods because we are um, truly having a lot of severe wildfires burning these beautiful old forests that I care so much about. Um, and when I now think about the urgency of what we need to do, I have a lot of tools that are in my mind. And I do think about adaptive management as that, that we learn by doing. So we actually have science-based recommendations right now that give us a lot of decision space for getting out into the woods and hopefully safeguarding a lot of these forests from the next big drought, big heat dome event, big fire, and all of them combined. And I think that the message is one actually of some hope that there are actionable things we can do. We're not always going to get it right. We're going to make a yeah. lot of mistakes. And I yeah. think that that's a key message to everyone is, is that we're in uncharted terrain. There's Absolutely. never been this confluence of events before. And so as we support um, firefighters, there are so many signs on the road, like, thank you, firefighters in our communities. I'd actually really encourage people to start thinking about maybe thank you prescribed burners. Thank you, managers. Let's let's get out and support some of these actions so that more of our forests can survive this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, changing the changing the hearts and minds again, getting people to understand everything that goes into it and not just the end end result. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I think and I think it is shifting, right? It does seem like we're with with the increase in communication with the internet and everything else, it seems like these these conversations are being made available more and more and it's but yeah, absolutely. That totally makes well, sense. Well, and when I first started studying climate change, it was really around um looking at forests for signs of um their tree rings showing drought stress um mm. with warmer climate. So we were looking for signals in our forests to show that um, climate change was already affecting them. So at that time that I first did my master's degree and then into my PhD, I had this idea that scientists should just do really good work and then stay in our lane. And then policymakers would take that good information and use it. We really learned that that was not enough. So climate change (laughs) is going on. And a bunch of my colleagues and I feel like even though it's much more comfortable to stay in that academic lane, 
we're putting ourselves out there because these wildfires and climate change um, changes to our climate are really rapidly um, eroding and changing for us. And we care enough that we're becoming more strident with our messages. Well, I mean, the politicians sure aren't staying in their lane. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, if you want to play fair, <laughs> it totally makes sense, right? Let's have the people that spend a lifetime learning about this thing teach the public about this thing. That seems to make sense to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear I, that. That's good. And I'm very encouraged by the public. I feel like I am surrounded by a bunch of fire ecologists who know quite a bit about fire and fuels management now. Mm. And um, I am very encouraged that people who are living in fire country are taking a pragmatic view about it and learning about good fire and learning about what we can do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, if you're comfortable, I'm comfortable. I think we've we've done a Great. good job of kind of going from start to finish, bringing it all together. Um, yeah, that was awesome. I uh, these conversations, like I said before, these big these big picture conversations. When I go to do this recording, I know that my brain is going to be going off the wire. I'm going to want to ask so many different things and to try and get it all down to one. But uh, thanks to you, I think we were able to keep it all very on the rails so i appreciate your help managing my brain because uh, you did a good job <laughs> i know you didn't know you were doing it but you did it and it was excellent <laughs> well you asked really great questions <laughs> well thanks for your time this was excellent and uh yeah that's perfect thank you so much for listening i hoped you enjoyed that i mean you listened to the whole thing you must have got something out of it <laughs> uh thanks for thanks for sticking through it thanks for listening please if you like this rate and review five stars really goes a long way it's all you got to do it's free content after all least you could do is use that thumb of yours to push a button for five stars you know that's all i ask it's, i think it's pretty reasonable uh yeah thanks a lot we'll catch you next time take it easy mm-hmm.